Hi, welcome back to Good Romance. I am just so excited to share the first episode of season two. Season two is extra special to me because it has a theme. Season two, Oops All Jews. I have been fortunate enough to speak to some amazing Jewish romance writers and readers I could just plots. Our first guest is the multi-talented Alina Adams, and we'll be discussing If Tomorrow Comes by Sydney Sheldon. I hope you enjoy. All right, Alina, thank you so much for coming on. We're so excited to talk to you. And by we, I mean me and my cat. <laughs> well, I'm excited to speak to you and anyone else who should wander up to the mic at this time. <laughs> Very diplomatic. We'll see how Pippin feels about that. So tell me a little about yourself. Introduce yourself to our, our viewing, listening audience. Well, my name is Alina Adams. I've written New York Times best-selling soap opera tie-ins to the shows As the World and Guiding Light. I've written contemporary romance. I've written Regency romance. I wrote a series of figure skating murder mysteries. I've written some nonfiction, both about skating and about getting into school in New York City, which is also a very um, mysterious topic to tie that into my other works. <laughs> my most recent release, was from HarperCollins. It was a book called The Nesting Dolls. It was historical fiction covering three generations of a Soviet Jewish family. I was born in the former Soviet Union in Odessa, an area that's certainly getting quite a bit of media coverage these days. And my next book will be out this November. It's called My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish autonomous region. It covers an area of the USSR that was the 20th century's first Jewish state Yes, it predates Israel by about 20 years, and that is the setting for My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, which is coming out this November. That's so exciting. I'm, I'll actually, I didn't know about this one. I had seen your bio with the Nesting Dolls one, but that's so cool because I didn't know that existed. I obviously I knew about the Pale of the Settlement, which is something that, you know, Jewish history, nobody, yes. nobody who isn't Jewish knows anything about Jewish history prior to 1946. Yes, that's, that is incredibly correct. It's like um, one of my children says, Jewish history, it's a little bit more than the Holocaust. <laughs> but uh, once I started researching it, there's a wonderful book by uh, Masha Gessen called Where the Jews Aren't. Oh, and I love her. Yeah. And I use that as sort of my base. The story is fiction, but the history comes a lot from there. I can't wait to read it. I also, I couldn't help but notice that you said um, figure skating romance. So I've actually, I'm sure that it exists outside of your work, but you, know, you see <laughs> hockey a lot. You don't see figure skating a lot. Well, here's the thing. I My background in skating goes all the way back to my younger brother was a competitive figure skater and I'm eight years older than him. So I was his guardian while he traveled. So that's when I learned a lot about skating. Then my degree, my college degree is actually in um, broadcasting radio and television. So when I went looking for work, I ended up at ABC Sports. And this is something that I always tell people, you never know what skill is going to come in handy. Because when I was interviewing for ABC Sports and other skating um, positions, I knew things. I knew a lot about skating. I could write. I knew I could write. But here's another fun fact. I spoke Russian which means I could bring something to the table that somebody else who maybe even was a better writer than me, was a better researcher than me, was a more organized producer than me. It's not hard to be more organized than me. But <laughs> the fact is that I could speak Russian. And so when I would travel, we would do, you know, ABC is famous for their up close and personal profiles. So we would travel to Russia to um, profile skaters. We went to Israel actually, um, but the skater from Israel was a Russian speaking skater. 
And while I couldn't speak Hebrew, I could actually speak Russian to him. So after all of that, when I did all of the uh, skating coverage, I was at the 1998 games in Nagano. I was at the world championships, the European championships. So you get so much information that you can't put on the air but you can put it in a book. Mm. So the book that we that you suggested for us to read today, tell me why you love it. It's If Tomorrow Comes by Sidney Sheldon. Well, it comes down to this. You know, when you're little, people ask you, who do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer was Sidney Sheldon, which is a really weird answer for a preteen girl to give. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe in the 80s, maybe in the 80s we read, because you know, here's the thing. I'm going off on a tangent. I'll do that a lot. I hope, hope you enjoy tangents. Is that- This like, podcast my, is all tangents. Oh, okay. All, all tangents all the time. Great. So as I mentioned, my daughter, she loves enemies to love it, but she reads, she reads a lot of fantasy too, but she reads a lot of YA. She reads romances that are teenagers, you know, Red, White, and Royal Blue. And I, I can't remember other titles because there's just so many of them. She came home from a book fair once and with this huge stack of pink books and her brother was like, that is a very pink stack of books. But she <laughs> reads specifically geared towards the teen market. And I, when I was a teen, I don't know if it was because they didn't have the same type of YA. From what I remember, I was a teen in the eighties. And from what I remember of YA, Everything was a crisis. You get, you have sex, then you get pregnant and die. You have sex, <laughs> and then you get a disease and die. You have sex, and then your boyfriend dies. Um, or you have a terminal illness, or your parents have a terminal illness. It was just very dark. And I like dark, but not in YA, because it came off as kind of whiny. So this is all coming to the fact that in the 80s, I didn't read YA. When I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I didn't read YA. I went straight to the adult section. You know, I went from the children's section in the library straight from to the adult because there really wasn't a YA unless it was fantasy and I'm not a big fantasy person. So I went straight to Sidney Sheldon. I went to Judith Kranz. I went to Belva Plain. I went to... Um, I didn't quite hit Harold Robbins and Jackie Collins that young. I had to work my way up to that, but definitely um, Sidney Sheldon and his books were just to me, I was also a soap opera watcher. I've been watching soap since 1980. Yes, I'm the Luke and Laura cliche, except the only difference is I'm still watching them. And I worked for Procter and Gamble. I worked for As the World Turns and Guiding Light. So I worked in soaps. I worked for ABC daytime where I worked for all my children and One Life to Live and all of those shows. So I love the romance genre, but I also love romance where something else is happening. I'm mm -hmm. not that big into the category romance where it's boy meets girl, girl meets boy. He's nice. She's nice. There's a misunderstanding. They get together. Not judging anyone who enjoys that. I, I have people tell me, you know, I need predictability in my life. The world is so insane that <laughs> I need to read a book where I know exactly what's going to happen. Great. But that's not me. I really need something else to be happening with the romance. And that's what Sidney Sheldon had. Um, when you actually reached out to me, I told you my favorite trashy romance book of all time is Master of the Game, but that's a generational saga. And that's what I write now. As I mentioned, The Nesting Dolls was a multi-generational saga. My Mother's Secret is a multi-generational saga. If Tomorrow Comes is more of a straight romance in the sense that there's a heroine, there's a hero, wackiness ensues but it's not just he's perfect she's perfect in fact they're both con artists they're trying to out con each other um another genre that i love oh look another tangent another genre that i love is uh, 1930s screwball comedies and my absolute favorite is his girl friday 
Rosalind Russell, Cary Grant, where banter, and that's another thing my daughter and I have in common. We both love banter. Why don't you read this book of mine? I say, it has banter. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not at all. I'm just going to bring it up every 30 seconds in case she ever listens to this. <laughs> the, the dialogue in His Girl Friday is fabulous, but there's also a whole other story. They're reporters that they're trying to get an interview with this death row inmate. Then at one point he actually escapes. They're hiding him in a desk. Sorry, spoilers. Oh, sorry, 80-year-old spoiler. Um, <laughs> so If Tomorrow Comes is very similar to the screwball comedies that I love in that A, the male and the female characters aren't perfect. They both got their quirks. And B, they're not just bantering for the sake of bantering, a bit like Pride and Prejudice, where really they have nothing better to do because, you know, what's his name has a fortune and she wants one, but neither one of them has, you know, a job. So at least in uh, If Tomorrow Comes, they're both trying to outcon each other and then they fall in love in spite of themselves. And that's sort of my kind of thing because I want romance and I want something else with my romance. I, I also like mysteries and thrillers. So if you can throw all that together and banter, I'm a happy girl. Oh, yeah. I think that that's what a lot of people like. I think a lot of people read romance without thinking about it because what they want is a mystery and they also mm -hmm. like a romance to go with it. Personally, like I, I often will think it's a bit of a red flag when there isn't any kind of romantic tension in media. Like, if it's just the all dudes wearing mm -hmm. suits, having a, a difficult conversation. Like, I'm like, okay, this might not even interest me at all. Because a lot of the time, if media doesn't have, like, any women in it, it's because they're like, oh, we don't need a romantic subplot. And I'm just like, I am bored by this. <laughs> one, one of the funniest things I ever read was apparently for A Few Good Men, where the lawyers are, I think, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, and is it Larry Miller or something like that. And there's no romantic um, interest in the story. So the movie executives kept trying to push for a romantic interest between Tom Cruise and Demi Moore. And I think it was Aaron Sorkin wrote the script. And he was saying, no, there's no romantic interest here. They're just colleagues. And the question from the studio was, then why is she a woman? <laughs> oh, such a studio question. Demi yeah. Moore, one of the most beautiful women in the world, excellent actress. Why is she a woman? Why why is she well the point was if the there wasn't gonna be a love interest, then why is that character a woman? We we could cast a straight white man. Yeah, I mean you're missing out on what how could we deny I don't know. I don't, who was an actor at the time? How can we deny Robert Redford another role? Like another role, he exactly. So there's very much, now here's the thing. I love like Law and Order because I mean, talk about, here we go. Talk about, you know what you're going to get. You know, I was just oh, talking yeah. about that. It's in formulaic moment. in the extreme. It's formulaic, but you know, especially, you know, if it's two in the morning and you've got a crying baby or you're on an airplane and you need to pass time, you don't want anything too challenging. So for Law and Order, I don't need a love interest in Law and Order. I'll just watch the procedure. I'll watch the case. You know, there'll be a twist at 17 minutes in, a twist at 23 minutes in, and so on and so on. So I have absolutely no problem if I'm in the right frame of mind to watch that kind of thing. But if I'm going to read a book, I want all of it. You know what? I want it all. So that, that's Queen, right? Um, I want it all and I want it now. I want romance. I want mystery. I want banter. I want twists and turns. And this is the most important thing. I don't want to know for sure how it's going to end. I mean, I'll have my suspicions that there'll be you know, either a happily ever after mm -hmm. or a happily for now. And I don't mind that, but I don't want to know it for a fact. I want that tension up until the last page. 
Sure. Yeah. I um. Speaking of soaps, I I, I want to. We're gonna eventually talk about the book. But like I said, this is a this podcast is a very Jewish podcast, and that is an exercise. <laughs> in we eventually get to the point. We'll get there oh, after about an hour. Goodbye. We'll say goodbye for about forty minutes. This'll yeah. Exactly. You got to walk around saying goodbye to everybody as soon as you walk in. Otherwise, you'll never leave. <laughs> you'll never get um, there. Did you ever watch Soap, the soap opera parody show? Oh, okay. Show? You now talk about a tangent. Soap is my favorite sitcom of all time. My brother and I have watched it from beginning to end. Speaking of it being a Jewish podcast, we watch it like the Torah. We go from <laughs> beginning to end, and then we have Simcha Soap Day, and we start again. So <laughs> absolutely. Soap is my favorite. Ask, ask me anything. Ask me anything. Ask me anything about soap. My brother and I sometimes have entire conversations in soap quotes. So yes, have I seen the television show Soap? Yeah, I've seen the television show Soap. If anything, it's seen you. You've seen it so many times. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Because from what you're telling me about yourself, it seems very up your alley. I mean, it's for anyone who does not know, Soap is a pair. I mean, I'm sure nobody knows. I don't think anybody living aside from you and I knows about this show. My brother, my brother. Your brother and you and, and me. Oh, and my cousin's wife. She's also a big fan. We're the exclusive audience for this oh, television girl, show. Girl. <laughs> it's it was a parody sitcom i think it was like a 22 minute show right yeah, it was it was a it fit into the half hour format it, it ran most of the time monday nights at 9 30. it was a show that the moral majority tried to cancel before even the first episode had aired so that's what it's sort of notorious for i believe it ran from i want to say 76 to 80. i might not be exactly right about that but yeah so no i i know a little bit about it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, but for yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say it's a it's basically supposed to be a parody of a soap opera. Like everything happens, Pippin. That's very rude of you. I'm talking. Um, it's it, everything happens. Alien abduction. There's seducing a priest. Illegitimate children. Possession. Like yeah. everything in the world happens on this show, and it is hilarious. And it is hilarious, but it's also brilliantly written. Susan Harris, who wrote most of the episodes, the way she could take an episode to go from comedy to drama back to comedy again is phenomenal. Harold Gould played um, a minor character where he's a character of Jody, who one of the reasons the moral majority had a problem with it was a character played by Billy Crystal. He was one of the first openly gay characters on primetime television. He tries to commit suicide. He has a roommate, an old Jewish man. See, we'll keep coming back to Judaism here. Um, played by Harold Gould. He has a monologue where he talks about why you go on living even after he lost his first wife and his second wife. And it swivels from comedy to pathos to drama back to comedy, phenomenal. Or the scene where the character of Jessica played by Catherine Hellman is explaining to her daughter, Corinne, played by Diana Canova. Yeah, I know a little bit about the show, um, about why <laughs> they didn't tell her that she was adopted. And again, from high comedy to drama, um, when Jody, played by Billy Crystal, comes out to his brother, Danny, played by Ted Wass, it's a two and a half minute scene. And the emotions that they hit without sacrificing punchlines because each punchline is part of the emotion the way that show was written i have never seen anything like it i mean susan wood harris went on she did the golden girls and she did other shows but i almost want to tell people everything you thought was brilliant about the golden girls was done better 10 years earlier with more story on soap oh yeah and i think one of my favorite things about the show um, is Benson, and right. I love that he got a, 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 like, the problem is that, obviously, um, back in the day when Netflix, um, just started streaming stuff, they only had, I don't know if you remember this, shows that were, like, on in, like, 
I want to say between 1920 and 1975. Okay. <laughs> like they only had older stuff that was easy to get mm-hmm. the rights for and Buffy, which obviously yes. was a very formative thing for me. Um, but I watched all of Soap in like, I want to say less than a year. Like I, I powered through it, um, but they didn't have Benson and I was infuriated. <laughs> It, Benson is much harder to find, I find. I don't know what it has to do with the rights. Maybe because they ask more for it because technically it was a bigger hit and I think ran longer than mm-hmm. Stoke did. Benson is much harder to find. But to be fair, with all due respect to Robert Guillaume and the cast, Benson was not as brilliant as so. Benson was a traditional sitcom. Benson was set up, punchline, set up, punchline. The characters didn't have nearly as much depth as the characters on Soap did. I can't think of one scene on Benson that hits the brilliance of the scenes that I described earlier from so. Oh yeah, I think, I mean, that's a creative team thing. Um, I do think Benson was pretty, uh, so for anyone again who doesn't know, they had, um, because it was a a soap opera parody, they had a a butler character who was the one black character. I don't remember if there, I mean, I haven't watched it as many times as you. I've watched it like once or twice all the way through. Um, And they, you know, it was a joke that he is the black butler. Um, although it wasn't offensive, like they really did not do racial humor that much unless well, it was him they, doing they, the joke about the white thing. people. Well, one thing when during the murder of Peter Campbell, who was, I believe, stabbed, um, what, what is it? Stabbed, strangled, in the shower. And decapitated. Yeah. So they were looking for it. And then the police chief goes through all the suspects and he says to Benson. And uh, he says, well, it's because you're the butler and everybody knows the butler did it. And his son says, and the color of my skin had nothing to do with it. Well, but it also, they tie it in again with the fact. And then he explains to Jody that you're a suspect because you're a homo. And Benson's response is, that's almost as good as my reason. So they definitely, they, they played it. That's what I mean. They, they played it, the comedic beats with serious social commentary. Although I'll tell you a very funny story. Again, I'm full of funny stories that go off on a tangent. <laughs> There's a scene when um, after um, Eunice, one of the daughters, runs off with Dutch, a felon who was in prison with her father, and they're hiding in the family cabin. And the cops come to look for them. And um, Benson is there with his boss, Jessica Catherine Hellman. And so in order to um, hide the fact that they're there hiding a felon, they claim to be a couple. And then Jessica refers to Benson as the doctor and the cop goes very incredulous, you're a doctor? And Benson says, neurosurgeon. And there's a huge laugh from the audience. And um, my husband is African-American, my kids are African-American. So we're watching this probably in 2015. And I think it's a good thing that my kids could not understand what was so funny about first this white woman claiming she was married to a black man and second the black man saying he was a neurosurgeon. That's actually a dated gag that it's actually very pleasant that they don't get the humor of it because there would be nothing funny about that today. Not that it would be sad, it would just be a matter of um, saying that's the way the world is. So that's another way in which soap they made their political points within a punchline. It was so interesting to me that a lot of it, like the social commentary of it was great. I obviously didn't get to watch Benson, although I think the the fact that he got a spinoff at all, because I know spinoffs weren't that common at that point they were actually pretty big because you have all in the family which spins off the jeffersons which spins off Maud, which spins off good times so you were actually in the late 70s you were kind of in the heart of spinoff territory huh i didn't know that well you know you learn new things every day but so now we're returning to the point which will happen pretty much like every 10 minutes so (laughs) 
I actually really enjoyed the book. I wasn't really expecting to because I am not a um, a crime revenge kind of reader. And this book is pretty like a revenge fantasy for like the first like act, basically. But it's really more of a caper. Wouldn't you say it's more of a, like, it, it starts dark, but then it goes into a light, funny caper sort of thing. I would say, yeah. I mean, because the premise basically is this woman is is wronged and framed for a crime and then she goes to prison and she has her like prison toughening up and then she comes out and she gets her very clever revenge uh, and then she just kind of like moves on and becomes like a mastermind. <laughs> yeah, a master con artist. And then she meets another mar uh, master con artist and sparks fly. I'm writing the taglines for the miniseries. There was a miniseries, by the way, Tom Berenger. Years oh. before he's nominated for Platoon for an, an Academy Award, before he's in the big chill, Tom Berenger actually plays Jeff in the miniseries version of If Tomorrow Comes. No way. Huh. Ah. I didn't even realize there was a miniseries, but oh, I guess if it was that popular. Was another, the 80s was another fine, fine time for miniseries, especially... As I said, I'm a family saga reader, so they would adapt like the Thornbirds and Master of the Game, and they have these actresses in their 40s playing characters from the ages of 15 on, and it was very amusing. And by amusing, I mean bad makeup. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, I, I make fun of a lot of television. I don't know if you watched Once Upon a Time on ABC a million you know, years ago. I tried to get into it. It would seem like it would really be my kind of thing because I love world building, but for some reason it just never really clicked for me. It, it takes a certain level of taste, but because um, you really have to be willing to suspend disbelief a lot and also just completely forget like any continuity just out the window. If you're not, if you're interested in a, a universe that is contained and makes sense, it's not oh, the yeah. show for you. I need continuity. I think, I think you pegged probably why it didn't work for me. I really need continuity. I'm the person watching like the Star Trek prequels now. And it's like, well, that doesn't track brain must rearrange brain. Yeah. So the hand waving is pretty, is pretty common in that show. And they also have like three or four common through lines that don't always pass the smell test. And I'm just like, mm, okay, I mean, you can pretend that's your theme, but I know what your theme really is. Interesting choice. Cool, cool, cool. Um, but what I really found really interesting about that show is that it is a family saga and it has like a lot of, um, and, and one of the funny things that you just reminded me of is that they have actresses in their late 30s, early 40s playing teenagers. <laughs> That, that was that was one of the big amusement points of the miniseries of the late 80s because family sagas were really big. So you'd follow a character. You'd usually follow at least two, usually three generations, which means the middle generation as a rule would be playing them from like 15 to 80. And, you know, now imagine Valerie Bertinelli going from 15 to 80, Diane Cannon going from 15 to 80, Rachel Ward. It's it's something. I always, I, I don't watch Downton Abbey anymore, obviously, like everybody. I watch like the first season and a half, maybe. Um, and I'm always amazed that the Violet Crawley character, the oldest one, the who's played by Maggie Smith, is supposed to still be alive. How old is she supposed to be? <laughs> she was like born in like, I don't know, 1850 when slavery was still legal or something. And I'm just like, how old is Violet Crawley supposed to be? And that she's still kicking in a time before penicillin. <laughs> Good constitution. Well, I mean, to be fair, I would believe Maggie Smith would survive anything. Exactly, exactly. Maggie Smith and cockroaches will survive the nuclear apocalypse. I, I, if you told me that, I'd go, yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. Since you're a fan of parody and, um, uh, and older stuff, have you ever seen the movie Murdered by Death? 
Yes, that's so funny. My husband and I just watched it like maybe a month ago because we had just seen, again, more stories. We had just seen Casablanca on the big screen for Casablanca's 75th re-release. Um, we, we had just seen Casablanca on the big screen. So we went through a bunch of them. We did Murdered by Death. We did one that Neil Simon did. I can't remember what it's called, but it was also a parody of like more Philip Marlowe than Casablanca, but it had the Bogart piece. So yes, I'm very much familiar with this. I also, I'm very, very classy in that I enjoy films like Airplane, mm. Hot Shots, and yes. So I, I'm very, very classy. Oh, yeah. I love, well, first of all, I love seeing movies with actors who I only know, obviously, being born in the 90s as an older person. Like Ma Maggie Smith, I've only known her as middle-aged and beyond because that's when I was born. You um, haven't seen The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, which is her big, uh, I think. I haven't seen that one either. Better, at least the nomination. So, yeah, she, she uh, where she's the, uh, the wacky fascist teacher at a girls' British boarding school. <laughs> But she's in Murdered by Death, super young, to the point that you barely recognize her, unless you're like looking for like her specific nose and mouth shape, because she's a very or distinct her nose and mouth. Yeah, you know, the way she yeah. sort of chews up the words before she sets them off. Oh yeah, although I think maybe my favorite thing that she's ever done is the she she really does completely kill as Professor McGonagall. Like, <laughs> obviously we all have mixed feelings about Harry Potter these days, but. Well, to Nothing. be fair, I had mixed feelings about Harry Potter before it was cool because <laughs> so much of it, you know, when I read it, so much of it just rang very, um, very pure blood. I mean, I know they, it's, you're supposed to not like the pure bloods, but just the folk, it was just very English. And then, of course, there's the little Jewish money lending elves. So I would like to say at this time that I had problems with Harry Potter before all the cool kids were doing it. Oh yeah, I'm fully there with you because I started having like, I mean, even from when I was a little kid, I don't know if this is just like growing up Jewish and like, so you see everything through like, you have a double consciousness situation. I think that's, I forget who coined that. Is that, um, is that Hughes? Do you remember? Not sure. I mean, oh. I know what you're talking about, but I'm not sure where it came from. So like I was seeing everything, I was like, oh, well, I could never go to Hogwarts, which is a horrible, sad feeling for a six-year-old to have because there's pork everywhere and there's no <laughs> synagogue in the town and like... I, I'm just thinking because I, I, you know, every kid desires to go to boarding school because oh, there's all these boarding school novels. And I was like, well, I guess even if I got a letter, I couldn't go because yeah. there's nothing for me to eat. <laughs> well, it's very funny. People are always saying, you know, what time period would you want to live in? And a good friend of mine, actually also a novelist, Kira Davis, she's black and Jewish. And she always says, well, let's see, am I me? Because if I'm black and Jewish and a woman, there really aren't a lot of great time periods for me to go to. <laughs> and uh, when I worked on uh, One Life to Live, there's an actress there, Robin Strasser, who she loves that question. If you ever interview her, she loves the what time period would you like to live in question. And she goes on and on about how she'd like to live in the 30s because of the fashion and all of that stuff. And you just want to go, Robin, honey, you're a Jewish woman. Where in the 1930s would you like to live that you're going to get to wear lovely hats and nothing bad is going to happen to you? So yeah, yeah. I've got something to tell you about the Avion Conference. <laughs> and Coco Chanel. So, um, yeah, I'm always curious when people ask, you know, what time period would you like to live in? First of all, I have a hard and fast rule. No time period, no, nothing romantic ever happened prior to the invention of indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. Throw in, I would like antibiotics, as you mentioned earlier, and I would really like epidurals. So those are all things that I need in order to feel romantic. So throw in gender and race and religion, and there are really not a lot of wonderful time periods for me to choose from. Yeah, I mean, my, my husband is always just really bummed out by this question because he's like, we can't have a fun conversation about this because I'm he a person of color. 
Like, um, I think I agree with you on most things because I know, personally speaking, as a person who is both mentally and physically ill all the time, um, I definitely could not live in a time before SSRIs and benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. I exactly. need mental health medication. They're drugs of choice. Mine are um, epidurals, antibiotics. Oh, and also big fan of antihistamines. Oh, sure, sure. So, yes. So those those are all things. And for me, indoor plumbing um, is, is a big one. And uh, yeah, so I'm right yeah. with you. So that's why when I did write, to be fair, I wrote two Regency romances primarily for the following reasons. So you know how they always say, write what you know. That's the guidelines that everybody gives writers. So when I was first starting out, when I was in my 20s, what did I know about? I knew about being an immigrant from the Soviet Union. I knew about um, you know living in America and having, as you talked about, the double consciousness. In my case, it wasn't just the Jewish piece. It was the immigrant piece. So it goes into all that. So I was writing all these books that were set in the Soviet Union. Because yes, boys and girls, this was at the time when there was still a Soviet Union. <laughs> and I was sending them out to editors and all the feedback I got back was, you know, Russia, Russia doesn't sell. Nobody cares. This is not an interesting topic. Ha ha ha. Um, yeah, everything's over. Cold War's over. Everything's great. Everything's if only fine. you could put those on submission now. Yeah, yeah Ru Rus Russia will never be a problem again. But um, so I got a call from an editor at Avon Books and she said to me, you know, Russia doesn't matter. Nobody cares, blah, blah, blah. But you clearly can write. And she said, would you consider writing a Regency romance? Because that's what I usually publish new authors in. And I said, sure. And then I hung up the phone and I said, what's a Regency romance? So, I mean, <laughs> now I know. But at the time, you know, I went to the library and I took out eight books, which was the maximum number you could take from the San Francisco Public Library. Again, as I mentioned earlier, very nerdy. I knew what the max number of books was you could take from the library. <laughs> and so, you know, write what you know. What do I know about Regency England? Nothing. What do I know about Jews? I know about Jews. So <laughs> I managed to sneak Jews into a Regency romance. And the book was called The Fictitious Marquis, and it came out in 1994. And then about two years ago, I was Googling my name, which is a totally normal thing to do. And um, <laughs> it turns out that Romance Writers of America had named The Fictitious Marquis the first own voices Jewish historical. That meant that prior to 1994, 1994, not 1894, not 1944, prior to that, according to RWA, a Jewish author had not written Jewish characters into a Regency. Can you believe that? I cannot very much believe it. <laughs> I, I was very surprised because, I mean, a friend of mine said, Kira Davis, who I mentioned earlier, she said to me, you were a trendsetter. And I said, yeah, it was an accidental trendsetter. It never occurred to me that in 1994, a Jewish author had not put or snuck, as the case may be, Jews into a Regency romance. So the fictitious marquee was reissued. It's now available again. But I had absolutely no idea. But the reason it's I'm so cool you, that you didn't even know you were like, I, I am know. just out here being a pioneer. Yeah, exactly. But the reason I'm telling you, so I wrote the first Regency romance and then I know another one, Thieves at Heart, which is actually very on point with this conversation, because here I'm going to describe a, the plot of Thieves at Heart to you. So there's these two characters, a man and a woman, and she's a con artist and he's a con artist. And they're both trying to out con each other to get the same option objects that they both want. Anything sounding familiar? <laughs> so Sydney Sheldon was very much the blueprint, I see. Yeah, except this is Regency England. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Um, which isn't to say that, that plot 
was hardly original to Sidney Sheldon or anyone else. As, oh, as of I, course. Nothing's new. Yes, nothing new. So as I was saying, so I wrote the two regencies, the fictitious Marquis and Thieves at Heart, because it's, you know, I'm very much of a, uh, people say, write the book of your heart. I say, no, write the book people will give you money for. Mm -hmm. And that's the one people gave me money for. So I did write those two regencies. But then after that, um, I wrote contemporary romance, because again, let's review indoor plumbing, antibiotics, epidurals. So after that, <laughs> And then I stayed in the contemporary genre until I did historical fiction. And to be fair, in my historical fiction, I do address the fact that when my characters in the nesting dolls are shipped off to Siberia, they are in cattle train cars without toilets. And in fact, I was, I was saying to a friend that if I ever become the kind of writer that people become, um, you know, they write PhDs about and they look for themes, um, toilets are going to be a theme because <laughs> I really think that if you're writing about characters and you don't address where the toilets are, you are missing a really big chunk of the human experience. So yes, that is why I believe nothing romantic ever happened, not only indoor plumbing, but let's talk about little things like contraceptives and deodorant and all sorts of other things that kind of get overlooked when people write, oh, wonderfully romantic scenes. Yeah, I mean, there's, I write some uh, historical stuff but personally it's difficult for me because first of all I'm like oh were there Jews here at this time were they kicked out because uh, I like to joke that the history of Judaism is just Jews being hacky sacked from one country to another for 2,000 years um so to be like oh shoot are there Jews here at this time second of all what's the like because I mean there's a, there's just we have a long rich history of um disappointment but <laughs> That's actually a good title. I think you have a title there. Thanks. A long, rich history of disappointment. Chosen to suffer. The long, rich history of disappointment of Jews. Um, we've had it pretty okay for the last 60 years. It's not perfect. I could still complain, but it, it's going all right. Um, but I, um, I really have trouble sometimes being like, how can I work around my own issues with the past? Because, I mean, first of all, you and I both know that there are genre things that are not real. Like, every single person gets pregnant so easily in these things. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not trying to tell writers how to do their jobs. They do a great job. I love your books. Writers, you're all doing so great. I love every single one of you. Um, except for J.K. Rowling uh, and uh, Dan Brown. If you really expanded that list, you could add quite a few more. James people. Patterson. Yeah, I don't love all of you. I love most of you. Um, just assume that if if you think that I would love you, I probably would. But um, even teenage girls, and sometimes even especially teenage girls, people don't get pregnant after a month of having sex all the time. Like, like I just, it, like, I think I'm going to do an episode one time with someone just like who I, just anybody, just to be like, things that don't happen in real life that happen in oh, romance that novels. That would actually be really fun. Because there was like, actually, though, do you remember about maybe a month ago, there was a Twitter trend where it was like, people who don't think romance novels are realistic should know that. And it was actually really fun because people were sharing their stories and a lot of them were really fun. So that was a really fun Twitter thread about how things that you think are unrealistic in romance novels do sometimes happen. It's like the one that I really remember is one person um, she wrote, um, I went um, home with a guy, had a one night stand, was leaving in the morning, bumped into his roommate. I married the roommate. Um, or there was another one who said, um, 
three days after our first date, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And the guy, um, I told the guy, you know, obviously you don't want to be a part of this. And like, and we've been together for 15 years. So there was some really great, great stuff. But yes, overall, I would say there's quite a few tropes in romance novels that teenage girls and boys and anyone who reads them really needs to know. That's not how it works. Well, and like, I think... For me, it makes it difficult to suspend disbelief because I have a really high threshold for that. Like, I'm like, okay, insane stuff is happening. I'm totally on board for your bananas shit. But when somebody is like, you know, I don't know, what's a what's a good bananas thing that happens pretty regularly? Um, hmm. I guess even like when people um, are so focused on paternity and maternity in books, um, an illegitimate child is actually pretty hard to hide for women. <laughs> for childbearing people. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a cosmetic issue. Yes, I agree with you there. Like, even in time when people disappeared from society, like they went off into the country for like six months of the year, people are going to notice you had a baby. Although, to be fair, since so much of my background is in soap operas and the grown children come back all the time, pop up going, hey, remember me? And there have been several instances of female characters not knowing they had a child. The male you can go with because, you know. But uh, yeah, so as someone who's a loud and proud defender of soap operas, I've got to say that's that's not unique to uh, romance novels. Although I like it, and the thing is, in soap operas, for me, it's a totally different thing, right? Because the soap opera is supposed to be hammy. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to, it has that, like, kind of magic attached to it where it's like, anything can happen. This is ridiculous. This is just the, you know, he turns out to be the secret prince of wherever. Like, that's, that's the soap that's, opera that's thing. That's romance novel too. That's actually pretty romance novel I think the most soap opera things that you don't get so much in romance novels is Back from the Dead. Oh, yeah, yeah probably your biggest thing that you don't get in romance novels that you get excessively in um in soaps and also now in superhero shows i mean my kids oh, watch yeah. soap opera shows which with all due respect are soap operas with capes that's oh, fully no and i mean and my husband is a lifelong comic book reader and you know he starts telling me the plots of something and it's like that that's a soap opera just because they have superpowers doesn't mean it wasn't that so it was like very funny my middle child maybe when he was about 12 watching the flash and he just could not believe that malcolm merlin came back from the dead i mean like for a week afterwards all i heard malcolm merlin is still alive i'm like oh honey there aren't enough soaps in your life because if there were oh yeah know this was gonna happen i think like top five soap tropes um soap tropes oh that's a good one soap trope um secret twin mm -hmm. back from the dead um the baby switch right Although you don't um, see much baby switch, because I mean, here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing about because I've worked in soaps for a very long time and I researched soaps and I wrote about soaps, is that shockingly, the audience for soaps, which is majority women, majority mm -hmm. of whom are mothers, don't love dead babies. There's <laughs> just something about dead babies that does not come off as entertainment to the bulk of the soap opera audience. So while there have been some brilliant 
dead baby stories on soaps. Um, I actually, I wrote a book called Soap Opera 451, a time capsule of soap opera's greatest stories. And I had fans actually write in. The way that it worked was fans wrote in and told me what their favorite moments were. And then I went to the actors, the writers and directors who had been part of those moments and did like a behind the scenes. And one of the ones that fans absolutely loved was General Hospital 1994, um, BJ's death and Maxie's heart transplant riveting stuff, heart rendering stuff. I mean, not campy, not the way you think of soaps at all. I mean, I would put that up with the drama level, the people of uh, Grey's Anatomy or any of those primetime shows that people somehow think are not soaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they won a ton of Emmys. The ratings went down because the fact of the matter is no matter how brilliantly written and acted these stories are and then some other soaps went on and did copycats case of our lives killed off a child to donate a liver um then general hospital went to that well again they killed off a child to donate a kidney it was because it had been done so brilliantly by claire labine um other soap writers did it here's a shocking thing mothers watching at home don't love dead babies <laughs> what you usually get with baby switch is either one of the babies is dead. So one of the women thinks her child is dead, even though they're not, but still they go through the whole emotion that people don't like. Or even if you switch babies and they're both alive. In fact, ABC did a whole cross soap thing where all my children, one life to live. They had a baby switch where the, sh the story was actually going on on two separate shows. And then the babies were switched back but you're still basically a mother losing her child. Even if you're getting another one back, it, shocking it might be to writers, one child doesn't substitute for another. There, <laughs> uh, so just, just a little, little tip for writers writing those stories. So even though those stories seem like they're prime soap fodder and sometimes they're done brilliantly, they tend to not raise ratings. So Baby Switch, I wouldn't put on the list of top five because that's not a well you want to go to a lot. On the other hand, the child you didn't know you had popping up, that one is, I can't think of how, I mean, like how many legitimate children has Stefano Demera on Days of Our Lives had just pop out, <laughs> out, out of nowhere. So that's more of a soap trope that the child you didn't know you had popping up rather than the baby switch. Again, another tangent. I bet you just thought this was going to be a three second segue and I turned it into a I life. mean, it's just so interesting. <laughs> you have a, a history of soaps just, I mean, you should write a history of soap operas or something. Well, the, the soap opera book that I did was, I thought a fresh Way of doing that and again it because it was an enhanced ebook not only did i first solicit um viewers via social media to tell me what their favorite scenes were then i went to the actors writers and directors to discuss the scenes but then i also had the actual scenes the videos links to them in the book. So it was a full multimedia experience and that you didn't just have to read about the scene that you may never have seen because you were born in the 90s and this scene happened in the 80s, but you could actually watch it. I'm not like a huge soap watcher as I was when I was younger, but I um, I do enjoy them. I did try to watch Grey's Anatomy, but uh, it's just, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> My, my daughter, she goes on these binges. And so she was watching Grey's Anatomy a while back. And I asked her, how far did you get? And she said, basically through four seasons. And then I lost interest. Of course, kids today, I think she watched the four seasons in a week. But um, the fact is that a lot of these shows, these primetime shows that love to think they're so much better than soaps. I mean, their production values are better. 
their mm-hmm. budget is bigger. I will certainly say the acting as a rule tends to be better simply because I don't know, they had a week to rehearse it rather than two hours in the morning. Mm-hmm. But there are scenes from daytime soaps that I would put up against some of the top writing and acting on primetime. Well, what's crazy to me is that these shows go on for like 15, you have Grey's Anatomies and like it's 16th season or whatever, and they think that that's not a soap opera. Yeah, I know. Is that so cute? Well, it's also so cute that they think 16 seasons. Oh, I believe Guiding Light went off the air after 71. Well, and so I, I think. 71, you let me know. Oh, look, I have nothing but the greatest response, respect for Shonda Rhimes. I oh, yeah. think she is phenomenal. It's like, as I, I was telling my kids, because th- my children are lucky, they get these lectures on a daily basis. You know, if Shonda Rhimes had just been a woman, Dianu, if she had just been a person of color, Dianu, but that she is a black woman who currently runs the TV airways the way that, you know, Aaron Spelling and David Kelly did back in their heyday is unbelievable. I have nothing but the utmost respect. She, she is the queen on every level. Oh, but, yeah. I mean, I, I respect her work a lot. <laughs> that said, it, it's not her. It's the people around the genre who would say, oh, Grey's Anatomy is not a soap opera. Well, they're just wrong. Well, Bridgerton is a soap opera, too. Yeah. Like, a lot of romance kind of veers into soap opera territory because people are like, oh, we can't have the whole thing be the romance. We have to have other kinds of intrigue. So Which to me, like, if, back to what I was saying, what I loved. Look at that. Mm-hmm. Look how well you brought that around. You we good. made it. We, we not only took the tangent and we made it relevant to the book, we circled it around. I'm so proud of us. I think we actually are killing it in terms of talking about the book because uh, actually funny, funny story. I realized when I was reading this book, I was like, huh, this is the first non-queer book I've read for the podcast. <laughs> this is the first straight book I'm reading for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> which was kind oh, of funny to me. It was the 80s. It was the 80s. I mean, I, you know, no offense meant. I, th- I have nothing against straight romance. I think that most people read majority straight romance unless they're like really into indie and only read indie because mm-hmm. there's just volume. Like you can't only read queer romance because there is not enough of it that's tried pubbed. Well, I, I feel like, again, I see this with my own daughter and, and, and this is actually a very nice trend. They don't see a difference. You know what I mean? In the sense that I think kids her age, they just read the kind of romance. They care more that it's enemies to lovers than whether it's queer or multiracial or any of the other subcategories that publishing wants to put it in. I think they just read more for the type. Is it fantasy? Is it enemies to lovers? Is it forced proximity? Is it all of that? That's more important than those other pieces. That's so cool. We're living in a, an amazing age because I remember, I know we talked a little bit earlier about YA. I was like the first gener- part of the first generation because S.E. Hinton invented YA with the outsiders in the 60s or the 70s, whenever that came out. I took a, when I was getting my master's, I took a class about YA literature um, and I'm very fancy. Yes, thank you for asking. Um, I have a master's and I can talk to you about soap opera. So aren't we both impressive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just, we're killing it over here with our education. Oh, yeah. But- uh, Essie Hinton invented um, young adult fiction, but it didn't really come into prominence like as a, a genre people really thought they could sell until mm-hmm. like, because you know how children's literature wasn't even all that popular until like 
the Hobbit became really like a thing. It's, I feel like it's a lot of these big fantasy books. Like Harry Potter didn't invent YA, but it did popularize it in a lot of ways. And I remember- well, like, Harry Potter didn't invent fantasy because I, I, I met so many people who told me it is the best book ever written. And I would ask them, have you read much English fantasy? And they look at me blankly and I'd go, Lion Witch Wardrobe, thinking that might be the most common title. And I got very blank looks. So yeah, just like um, Harry Potter didn't invent a YA, didn't invent English fantasy either. But again, I digress. Do go on. Yeah, I think a lot of people do have this misconception that because Harry Potter is such a cultural flashpoint that it invented all these things that they love. And now that it, I think I might make a, a listicle that's just like all the books you can read <laughs> if you love Harry Potter and now it breaks your heart. Because mm -hmm. like people just don't know Diana Wynne-Jones exists. She's just out there being an icon. I mean, she's not. Mm -hmm. She's dead. But <laughs> she's her books are just out there waiting for you to fall in love with them. And nobody knows about it. Like people just don't know. I don't know if you're a Miyazaki fan, Hayao Miyazaki, who makes the the anime films. Um, I mean, I know of them because my husband and daughter actually watch a lot of anime together. So I know they exist, but it's not really my thing. The most popular one is in America, at least, is Howl's Moving Castle, which I'm sure you've seen bits of. Um, oh. And it was written by Diana Wynne-Jones, the original book. Hayao Miyazaki always puts in like new, like even if he takes from, if he, if he adapts a work, he puts in, you know, anti-war elements and things like that because he's got a very specific framework. Um, but... The original book comes from Diana Wynne-Jones, which is, it's I, it's such an amazing book. And it's totally different in a lot of ways. Like, to me, I have this idea that books and movies are very different, obviously. Like, there's just different kinds of storytelling. And I think that a book and a movie can be the same level of awesome and, like, really, really good and really, really enjoyable, even if they're super different. I, I my, my, my comparison for this is The Princess Bride. The movie mm -hmm. is perfect. The book is perfect. And you don't need to compare them because they're both great. And that's how I feel about um, Hayao Miyazaki's uh, House Moving Castle and Diana Wynne Jones' House Moving Castle. They're both the perfect version of the thing that they are. Which so brings thinking, up Tomorrow Comes, mm -hmm. look at that, look at us bringing it around, that the miniseries actually changes one key thing from the book, which I think, I don't know if better is the right word, but it makes it better for its medium. Because in the book, you follow Tracy's story. The first third is all of Tracy's story. And Jeff doesn't even come in until the second third. And then it goes from there. In the miniseries, they tell their background stories in parallel and even have them meet very briefly in a scene that doesn't exist in the book so that they actually meet very early before she goes to jail. They pay very little attention to each other, but it's there. And then it tells you their two stories in parallel before they finally meet, which for the miniseries genre actually works in a way that the way that the structure of the book was probably would not have. Because if you have three nights of a miniseries and you don't even introduce the male lead until the second night, that doesn't really play for the miniseries format. I like that. I think that really works because my one criticism of the book, well, I had a couple different things. <laughs> Obviously, the racial stuff was a little outdated <laughs> um, because it, it, was it was the, the 80s. 80s. Every time you say that, I'm just going to go to, it was the 80s. And I really enjoyed like the highest aspects of it in terms of like the amount of sexual violence and the language. Like it's not really my thing. Like I enjoyed reading it and I think it's a really interesting book, but it's definitely not something that I'd read for fun just because that's not what I like. 
Um, I don't mind having like a backstory of that kind of thing, but just generally reading about like any kind of sexual violence, I'm like, I'm actually so good. Um, <laughs> but, when I talked about the death of babies, no, it's, it's, oh, very, yeah. that's, it's the same kind of thing that shockingly enough, women, a good chunk of women, obviously not all women do not find either the deaths of babies or sexual violence to be a particularly entertaining thing. Yeah. And I mean, also these days, I don't know how it was back in the 80s, because again, wasn't born. But um, these days, it's like, okay, we have our, our motivation being revenge for a woman being wronged and scorned is kind of like, to me, a little bit outdated. But again, the 80s, like I, you know, her her revenge not just comes from being, although she actually does have kind of like a, it's kind of an interesting role reversal, because usually it's the man in prison who's had his family taken away <laughs> from him. It's very, yeah. um, Oh, what's the word? The 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 revenge thriller, the Marquis de something. Um, sure. Oh, it, it's I'm blanking on it now. But basically, the guy comes back and his like taking revenge for his father being like it's. I think it's a French book. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's like a it was like the blueprint. Um, it'll come to me as soon as we re- stop well, recording. Oh, Princess Bride. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepared it's to similar, die. Similar, yeah. <laughs> but like it's very much it's almost always the guy who like oh they, they killed his wife and his child and and now well, I mean, he has that's to the motivation for gladiator and all of these other things it's very common to have the male warrior brought down and humbled and one of the humbling is not only does he lose his power and position but he loses his family as well yeah it very much feels like a coming of age novel in a weird way um coming of age to become a con artist is certainly <laughs> certainly not when you oh, normally it's see it's, it's you seize your power girl boss as my daughter would say yeah i did find tracy's character like to be a little bit like toward the end i was like i don't know what she wants which i think you're supposed to kind of feel because she's kind of she never thought her life would go this way she wanted the normal stuff she's like i have a happy family i'm very respected in my field and then like her entire life is completely turned upside down and um, you know, and so she has to go be the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, um, yes. which is very much a Sydney Sheldon thing across the board. If you read it, another book that was turned into a miniseries, Rage of Angels, is also very similar in that you have a character who's a lawyer and then forces conspire to again. I just want a normal life. I want to be in my field, but then you know, outside forces destroy her father, and uh, very similar. She doesn't go to jail, but she's also brought completely down. I think on TV tropes, which is talk about another um, website that you can go down the um, rabbit hole in, they call it Break the Cutie, mm-hmm. where it's basically a character, I'm perfectly happy and life is great. And then something happens and it turns them dark. So um, that's the trope. And Sidney Sheldon was really into it. A lot of his books also Stranger in the Mirror. Oh, definitely The Other Side of Midnight. That's So it, it goes kind of his thing. Like you mentioned an author earlier who writes within very certain parameters. That was very much a repetitive theme for him. It kind of reminds me of a Dan Brown novel I read a couple of years ago called Digital Fortress. I don't know if you've read any of that one. I've never read anything by Dan Brown. He's a, what is it, a symbologist? What is he? I fully do not know. The man <laughs> is a, is an enigma. Uh, he's, the, but, but he is the, he is the angels and demons, the, the yeah, right. Vinci I Code think, guy. Yeah, a symbologist. Yeah, I mean, I only read it because I was really into like the idea of like computers for a while as like, you know, and like it's it's got spy stuff in it, and it was like you know on the shelf of the library, and I was like, well, it has a green cover, and whatever uh, <laughs> reason is any. Yeah, so I did read it, and I I there is like kind of a romance arc, uh, and there's a creepy old man who's interested in the young woman, and like you know it, it had kind of similar vibes for me, and then they do have their happy ending. Um, 
But for me, it's just, it's, um, I think that it, the way that they did in the miniseries, the way you described kind of sounds really good for me because I, I really wanted more of them like actually falling in love. Um, mm -hmm. You have to that, fill in the blank. There's a lot of blank exactly. that you have to fill in. Absolutely. I, I love Jeff's backstory so much. I'm a really big Jeff fan in this because I think ultimately like he's the sensitive one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's like the one who's emotionally intelligent, um, which I think which is, is an underrated superpower. Which is a bit subversive for the 80s. Again, I'll keep coming back to it was the 80s. You mentioned how it's usually the male hero's path of, you know, being broken, sent to jail, coming out to seek revenge. Um, so in that way, it was a bit subversive and that it was the female character who has that arc. And as you said, the male character is the one who's more sensitive and more emotionally intelligent. So every once in a while for all the problem elements, we can go, okay, that was a little subversive too. I think even now, because we have a serious problem with masculinity in romance that I think doesn't get discussed a lot, because we talk a lot about like, oh, fat women need get to be on, should get to be on covers, and you know we don't have to have all white women anymore. We don't have to have all white couples anymore. Like we talk a lot about, um, because I think primarily a lot of the writers of the genre are women or mm -hmm. feminine people. Um, and so we, we talk a lot about women's issues and I don't mean to be like, but what about men? But because I'm not I'm not someone who's like, but what about men in regular life? I do think that kind of like talking about all these very, you know, chunky, masculine alpha guys, like I really like to read about guys who are just kind of like a person out there doing their thing. <laughs> Well, if you want to fall in love with a couple, you have to have both of them represented. I think it's not a matter of, but what about men? But it's about what about the other person? Because if you're only seeing the entire relationship through one person's eyes and you only understand them, then the other person becomes objectified. Now you can see some people going, let's objectify some men. Fine, I understand the, um, what is it, reciprocity of it. But the fact of the matter is, if you want me to buy into the romance between these two people, regardless of, as I said, gender or race or anything else, you have got to give me two people, not a person and a cipher. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very much like you said, like it's the romantic subject and the romantic object. Um, and for me, like reading a lot of these um, more popular even now, like like there are these really popular, usually they're initially self-pubbed and then they get a trad pub release if they're really popular, like um, The Spanish Love Deception. I don't know if you've read that one. That's one of the very popular new ones. Um, and it has like, the, the guy has an internal life. I'm not going to say he doesn't. Um, but it feels a lot of the time as though the man is like, I know what I want. I'm going to do my thing. And the woman is just like, I have a very complex backstory situation. <laughs> I'm too busy sitting here thinking about my complex backstory to deal with you right now. Yeah, you're very hot and everything, but I have a very complex backstory. <laughs> Thank you for applying. Yeah, my, my daughter, she shows me all these TikToks, whereas like, it's great. Have you, have you seen Book Talk? where you have the care um acting out various tropes and it's like but i'm so so dark i'm not like other girls i have a tragic backstory i can't possibly go on this quest with you so yeah a lot of that and i'm not opposed to tropes i'm not opposed to like a silent strong type i myself am married to a grump um <laughs> but like i think generally speaking one person who does this really amazingly is um talia hibbert i don't know if you've read any of her contemporaries but they're amazing particularly the Brown Sisters books, who I will I will talk about these until I'm blue in the face. But they're, they're dual point of view, which is actually my preference. I like dual point of view. Um, and her guys have these great backstories with really like, you know, they have a 
personal history. They have a family history. They have their own trauma. Like, and especially with the first book, these books are like kind of books that definitely need trigger warnings, um, which I think I'm glad to normalize because like, I literally, I mean, most of the time I'm not triggered in like the traditional sense of like going to have a breakdown now of being like, oh, I'm just going to put this down. This isn't right now for me. But like, I mean, to put for some context, one time I burst into tears randomly, terrifying my family during an episode of Community. So <laughs> these things happen. Um, so like at her first of the Brown Sisters books, the male character's backstory is of being in an abusive relationship. And you don't see that often. Sometimes you see, oh, my bitch wife, which is very much like, oh, my bitch wife is a very stock, mm-hmm. um, my hey, bitch my ex-wife. Wife. Yeah. Um, but like, oh, my abusive ex-girlfriend who has given me this trauma and like I have to deal with it. You don't see men having that kind of complex internal backstory even now in a lot of books. And I'm just like, any person who is the romantic object needs to also be a like there need to be two romantic subjects there's no romantic object right that's 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 what i was saying if you want me to fall in love with two people give me two people Mm -hmm. i think that's one of like the like because you know there's the cliches and the cliches can always like you can make a find a way to make a cliche interesting like Mm -hmm. if we're going to talk about a cliche like the i will follow their no sons because my father was a piece of shit like that's a very bridgerton but also like (laughs) Every single guy who is determinedly, I really wish we could get rid of like the romance trope of man who doesn't want a family until he meets the right woman. That annoys me so much. Well, I would like that to extend to women as well. You know, if you don't oh, yeah, want a woman who just needs kid. the right man. Yeah. Well, my whole thing is, I mean, I have three kids, so obviously I'm pro kids. But as I always tell people, if you're not 100% sure that you want kids, don't have kids because it's hard enough when you, my husband and I were both 100% sure. Neither one of us had any doubts. He's a teacher. We both really love kids. Um, So we were absolutely sure. But it's so damn hard that if you're not 100% sure, there's no reason to do it. Yeah, my mom used to say, um, you should only become an actor if you absolutely 100% can't stand the idea of not being an actor. That's how I feel about having children. Because I think before, as people of your generation perhaps, but like anything Generation X and above, it was just the thing you did. Yeah. People just had children. It was the expectation. You know, make more babies for the workforce. (laughs) Uh, Capitalism, keep it moving. But I think especially these days you're also seeing a lot of like childless romance and i'm like excellent perfect i yeah, love that no, that's that's i as i said even as someone who loves kids and i and i'm actually one of the people who loves kids in romance novels if they're written well if they're not just either brats or adorable moppets or even worse people who think they're adorable moppets but they're obviously brats that's one <laughs> that i'm not a fan of um but I'm a 100% support ally, anything you want to call it, of people who choose not to have children because it's hard. But to be fair, what your mom said about acting, I feel exactly the same way about writing. Don't become a writer unless there's really, unless you can't not. I mean, it's impossible for me not to write. If I'm not physically writing, I've got stories in my head. Um, 30 Rock, another show that I love, written by a woman. Um, Oh, I love 30 Rock. I I quote 30 Rock on a daily basis. There you go. It's your soap, basically, for me. Mm -hmm. So here's here's an interesting thing. I was thinking a while back that my favorite, this was when 30 Rock was still on, that my favorite classic sitcom was Soap. And my favorite sitcom at that time was 30 Rock. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they were both written and created by women. 
I think there's really something there that maybe on a conscious level, I, I, cause it's not like I went, I'm only going to watch. I, I actually do have a point where I try to read more books by women, especially when I have a choice, um, I'll try to read by women. Um, but it's not like I consciously went looking for a television show that was created for women. And those were my two favorite ones. But the reason that I brought up 30 Rock is there's the dream sequence where she is, where was it typewriter repairman and um, what is it, a travel agent and all careers that no longer serve a purpose. And Liz's line is, I have no other skills. <laughs> that for me is what writing is. Not only do I have no other skills, but it's impossible for me not to be writing. As I said, if I'm not physically typing, I've got stories in my head. I have people talking in my head. They talk a lot. Sometimes they argue. Sometimes they won't shut up when I'm trying to sleep. So yes, the way I, about children and what your mom said about acting, that's exactly how I feel about writing. Do not, under any circumstances, become a writer unless you literally physically cannot not do it. Well, I think a lot of people tell stories and write stories who like don't necessarily want to do it for a living or just because I know a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I love to write. I never want to be a writer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's Ugh. just, I mean... You, if you ever on writer Twitter, it is everyone's always talking about rejection. Everyone's always talking about disappointment and setbacks. And like, that's, I mean, that's life partially. Like I'm applying for, for work right now, even though I'm, I'm very gainfully employed. I just need a new job. Um, but, um, you know, like life is a series of rejections. Being a writer is like a fire hose of rejections. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. It's, it's not a life. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's very much the case, especially like if you are doing it full time. That's not something that I ever want to commit to. Like, I don't think maybe when I'm retired, retired, because I don't think that I'll ever really stop doing things like, you know, there's a certain I forget what it is. There's like a men die within like 18 months of retirement or something because they don't have social circles. <laughs> but um, so one of my my um, one of my mentors is like, I'm never going to fully retire, Rachel. I'm going to partially retire and go to work ah, a couple days a down. week. Yeah, he's so. like, I'm going to stave off the Grim Reaper. Um, but in my case, I think I'm always going to be doing something, even if it's just like volunteer worker or whatever, because, you know, yeah. like, because I think that a lot of Jewish communities, the, the, the bedrock of Jewish communities are retired women who are doing things. <laughs> well, you know, I got to tell you, I, I sit on a, on a committee at UJA. Um, and there are women there who are older than me, you know, women in their 70s who have been doing this for, you know, 40, 30, 40 more, 50 years. And the fact is the Jewish community and honestly, the philanthropic community would not function if it were not for women volunteers. And when people think of volunteers, this isn't just stuffing envelopes, not that that isn't great and someone needs to do it. And in fact, they need more people to stuff envelopes than to be brilliant thinkers. But these are women who are managing budgets of 10, 20 million, you know, depending on some of the boards that they're sitting on. So this isn't some minor, people dismiss volunteering like it's some minor little hobby. There are incredible women who, yes, maybe they never held a quote unquote job in the traditional sense, as you said, capitalism earlier in their life. But these are women who maybe for 50 years have been doing work that literally supports entire communities managing massive budgets managing volunteer teams of 100 people and it's somehow considered like little dabble dilettante work mm -hmm. it's like rearranging flowers on a table yeah. 
I think that um, because of the capitalist framework that we all are forced to live inside of, there's this prioritization of work that either has material gain, so like money or prestige, you know, neurosurgeon, um, <laughs> or work that is like that ha that brings like like oh you are a stay at home mom, you are. I mean, and everybody also even in within those communities, everybody's arguing like oh the stay at home moms all hate the working moms, and the working moms all hate the stay at home moms. Like there's just no way to win. As well, a woman. you know, my, I'm a I'm a big uh, fan of the movie War Games, which again you're too young for. But it's just what we learned from War Games: the only way to win is not to play. So exactly. I, I don't get into those things. You know, I've uh, stayed at home. I've always worked, but sometimes I've worked from home. I've worked in corporations. I've worked at smaller companies. I've run my own business. I've done all of that. So for me, I don't care. Here's here's something that you know people talk about. Um, not quite sure how to frame this, but I want to start a political movement that's called I don't care. And it comes <laughs> to this. I don't care how you live your life. It does not concern me who you sleep with. It does not concern me what God you worship. It does not concern anything. I want to start I don't careism because I think it's people that care that, you know, put initiatives on the ballots to stop group A from doing B. And, and I, I mean that across the entire political spectrum. I'm not calling anyone out, but it's people who care what other people are doing that try to impose their values on other people. And I want to start the I don't care movement. I don't care what you do. So you do whatever you want and I'll do whatever I want. So it's that same sort of thing when you talk about working moms, you know, hate stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home moms hate working moms or whatever. I don't care. Oh, I'm fully there with you 100%. Like, I think it's so, there's two different frames of mind in this that I'm in. First of all, I don't care what anybody does with their life. If your life is meaningful because you are a daisy salesman, I am happy for you. I will buy one for my buttonhole. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I think that we all are, are, we have an individualist mindset, but at the same time we have a community focused individualism where it's like, you have to do what we all think is the right thing to do. And what we think is the right thing to do is the thing that I do. Everyone thinks that their individual solution for their personal happiness is a systemic solution. And that makes me so insane. I am just like, okay, I get that you think homeschooling your kid is going to fix them, but a lot of people have to work for a living. Like, <laughs> a child dropped out of high school to homeschool himself. Oh, one of my, my brother-in-law dropped out. Like, I mean, he didn't drop. He he's homeschooled and he finished. But, um, you know, everybody no, that's, has that's their. What he did too. That's what he did. I have three kids. Two are on the traditional academic track. My middle one has been begging to homeschool himself since he was in third grade, saying I can teach myself better. We dragged it out until high school, then the pandemic hit and he actually had a point. So yeah, but do what I tell other people to do that? No way, no, 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 because I don't care what you do with your kid. Yeah, I think that we, we have a very society problem, a very society problem, while well, looking at my English, um, of everybody cannot mind their own goddamn business. And like, it's like those people who are like, oh, you're selfish for not having kids. I'm like, you're selfish for bringing it up. I don't want to discuss your childbearing. This is very personal. And icky. And, yeah, I mean. Childbearing, icky. I've talked a lot about uh, how people will just ask the most invasive questions of women. People <laughs> will just be like, like, it's like asking like, oh, are you having unprotected sex? Like, that's just such a weird thing to ask a stranger. It's such a weird thing to want to know. Yeah, like like my my uterus is nobody's business except for mine and my endocrinologist. 
Well, when I, I told people I was pregnant with my third, so many people asked me, did you want a third? And I was like, okay, well, first of all, yes. And second of all, if I didn't, do you really think I'm going to tell you? It was a such very a weird question. question. It was such a weird question, only with the third. Um, and because I had two boys, people were like, oh, oh, you want that girl. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, I did happen to get a girl, but that was absolutely 100%. I was actually sure because statistically speaking, if you have two of one gender, you have a 90% chance of having a third of the same gender. So mm -hmm. I was actually pretty sure it was going to be another boy. That was so not it, but people just assumed. Well, people, we actually had this conversation on Twitter, me and a couple other people the other day, that um, people who are like, oh, well, don't you want to try for, like, if you have only boys and they're like, oh, you want to try for a girl? And I'm just like, do you understand how you are devaluing your kids in this way? I mean, that's usually like, oh, you have only girls, you want to keep trying for a boy. Because if you have boys, people are like, oh, well, you're fine, you did it. Um, <laughs> congratulations, you have you have produced two more workers. Uh, hey, I expect my girl to be a worker too, capitalism. <laughs> yeah, of course, a girl boss. Um, girl boss, oh, she is, she is a girl boss. But I think that a lot of the time people will just say the most invasive things thinking that is a like society acceptable thing. Like my grandmother had four girls in the hope of one day having a boy. It wasn't going to happen. Uh, they only made one brand, as they say. Um, <laughs> and like that's affected my aunts a lot. <laughs> like you're really showing how you value your children when um, you're really focused on one individual aspect, the sex of your child especially these days like maybe in a time i kind of understand it a little tiny bit in a time when like only the boy can inherit the farm i need to save the well, prosperity yeah, of the family well you literally needed someone to till the field when you were no longer strong enough to carry that axe when you needed someone who could go out and chop down a tree when you no longer could that at least had some implication yeah and i mean i understand kind of to that point like oh we need someone to inherit the farm like that's a situation for me but these days, children are supposed to not be an economic concern. It's supposed to be, do you want to parent? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that a lot of people shouldn't have kids who do. <laughs> <laughs> I I am pro-kid, generally speaking. Like, I think any, I, I'm pro any choice anybody. Do you want your nose pierced? Congratulations. Have a good life. Like, I mean, obviously having a child is a bigger decision. But my thing about it is that after you have a kid, you are never not a parent anymore. Like, people joke about, like... Funniest thing I've heard from more than one person, they've said, well, we, if they're in a partnership, we are not really sure about getting married. We're not sure if we want to make that kind of commitment. So that's why we're just having a kid together. <laughs> Do you understand that a kid is a lifelong commitment? That a marriage, domestic partnership, whatever you want to call it, can be called off at any time. And if you don't have a kid, you never need to see each other again. I mean, maybe you need mm -hmm. to sell the house. Maybe there's a cat involved. But if you have a kid, that's it. You are in each other's lives forever if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but I've heard this from more than one person. We're not quite sure we're ready to make the commitment to get married. So we're just going to have a baby. I That makes, that grinds my gears. I think people, generally speaking, don't think of children as autonomous beings. <laughs> Um, because first of all, in this, in this country, children have no rights. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but children aren't really people. Um, and so like, I, I have heard that also people who are like, oh, well, we don't know about if we're going to be together forever, but we do want a baby. And I'm like, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. First of all, like, I, I think if you don't want to get married, like, great. Marriage is not for everybody. I think that especially given like how 
like the rights that it gives people over you if, if that's not something you're comfortable with like you know go with god i don't give a shit uh if marriage rates are falling good maybe women are valuing themselves more um because a lot of people will have like you know if, if you're avoiding that bad first marriage i am 100 percent there for you but i don't think having a child is an alternative <laughs> yeah yeah it's not an either or thing which brings me to if tomorrow comes because <laughs> there were sequels it's okay so Sidney sheldon died and this woman named tilly earnshaw not sure if that's correct um wrote sequels and mm -hmm. she, the first one she wrote was to if tomorrow comes um because it makes sense because if tomorrow comes was the one that felt the most episodic fun fact Sidney sheldon was involved in the television show heart to heart which again you're too um you're too young for but robert wagner <laughs> stephanie um Stephanie Powers. Um, they're a fabulously rich couple who just travel around the world having adventures and solving mysteries every week. So mm -hmm. you can see how If Tomorrow Comes lends itself to that format. So the next one, I think it was called Chasing Tomorrow. But here's something really interesting that happened. So the original book came out in the late 1980s. The sequel came out maybe five years ago, but it picked up the next day. You know, the book ends with Tracy on the plane meeting mm -hmm. the, the guy. Um, I'm going to do more than that in case people don't want the spoiler. And it picks up on that plane ride. But suddenly Tracy is thinking about how she created a Wikipedia page in order to, um, you know, um, buffer up her uh, false persona. And suddenly they have phones and the Internet. So fun fact, the sequel, speaking about people getting married and then the challenges of being married and kids and all of that, is that it jumps ahead, I think, 15 years in time. No, more, probably more, more like 25 years in time in just um, the two books. So I thought that was a really fun fact to share. And by fun, I mean not. And well, the that's, book that, So that's just an inconsistency that they were like, oh, well, we don't want to bother setting this in the 80s anymore. We're just going to. We're going to set it in present day. And it's all that's about. bananas. Yeah. Very much so. So I thought I would actually share that because it does tie in because they do address, you know, you had this exciting life being, um, you know, two con artists, but what do you do now that you're married and boring domesticity? That actually, that, that's how I'm bringing it around. At least in my head, the connection made sense. Um, so, but the thing is they jump ahead 25 years with technology and time without addressing the fact that we've just stepped into a time where we're basically in Terminator land here. Wow. Yeah, there's a really great podcast I used to listen to that they don't make it anymore regularly, but it's called um, it's called the Thrilling Adventure Hour, and they have a um, a segment called Beyond Belief, which is these two married mediums, Sadie and Frank Doyle, who are high society at home, equally at home in high society and in the nether realms, and so their thing is that they're fabulously rich, and they just go around solving mystical stuff like they're like oh you have a chupacabra interesting let me deal with that can i have a drink please and they're alcoholics also but in like a no, fun british person way so it's nick and nora charles basically yeah. it's the thin man so because they're perpetually alcoholics uh, but in a fun we live in new york in the 1930s so it's not really a problem sort of way and they are like so proudly child free there's at one point where they um they have like a child pinocchioed into their lives and then they go Suddenly we have a kid, and then like the whole joke is that they're like, a child does not fit into our lives. Why doesn't he have a bedroom? Why isn't there, you know, like biting on the wainscoting? Why don't we have the things that we ought to have for a child? Because they're just like so not kid people. 
Well, that's sort of like, I mean, it, it's ironic because I just said that my husband and I, we really like kids. Like I said, he's a teacher. But on the other hand, we sort of like fit kids into our lives, fit kids into our lives. And there was one time where this adult was speaking to one of our children and it was this really weird tone of voice. And I couldn't figure out why is she talking to them like that? What does that mean? And then I went, oh, she's talking to him like he's a child. And it's like at our house, we just don't talk to them that way. And it, and most of our friends, cause you know, you take cues from the people around us, they talk to them and, and I don't mean, and, I'm not one of those people who thinks that children should interact with adults as if they were peers. You know, I mean, I expect respect and all of that, but there's a difference between asking my children to be respectful and having adults speak to them, not like their children. So this one person had completely thrown like, what is that tone? Why does she sound like that? So it, it is sort of a bit, I must plead guilty to, even though we did have children, we sort of fit them into our lives rather than the other way around, which some people would say is wrong, but I don't care. <laughs> Your personal philosophy has personal come around. Comes into play. I don't care. I'm with you there just because I think like there's also different kind of ways to be a parent and to have a family. And like, I mean, you live in New York City. I bet you you don't have like, I don't know, a yard. Like <laughs> I don't have a yard. I don't have a car. I make my kids walk everywhere we take public transportation but i mean when i say walk everywhere i mean like 40 blocks my kids call them death marches so yes there's a lot of things but here i'll tell you another story i'm full of stories tell me to stop at any point because i have <laughs> So Why would I, I? We're having so much fun. This was um, this was actually I was at a mystery writer. I think it may have been. I don't remember which mystery convention it was. What's the one in D.C.? Is that Malice Domestic? It might have been Malice Domestic. I don't I don't remember. And I was having you know, I was on the bus going to the event with a lovely woman whose name I fortunately I don't remember because I would love to promote her books, but I don't remember her name. And she said to me, oh, you grew up in, you're, you're raising your kids in New York City. She said I could never raise kids in New York City. It's so dangerous. And then five minutes later she tells me how she lives in Colorado and her stepson was jogging around the high school track early in the morning you know just just training and a mountain lion jumped on his back huh. now, I am not saying that New York City is the safest place on earth I was just on a subway um, which was emptied out because there was a suspected shooter on it a few days ago I'm not saying that but a mountain lion has never jumped on any of my kids <laughs> He's sort of relative. I don't want to leave this story there. It's just he jumped on him, knocked him down, and then went on. Her stepson's fine, but a mountain lion jumped on him. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and my husband is a New Yorker. And so he's just like, this city is so dirty and so dangerous, and so much happens here. And I'm like, you are from Manhattan, <laughs> where, like, like, it's a stereotype how people do crime. And he's just like, no. So my, my, my dad and my mom are from Michigan and Detroit, um, Mich D Detroit and Chicago, two of the crimiest crime places. Um, but like we've discussed, you know, where we're going to settle down in a million years when we have money to do so. And he's just like, well, Chicago's full of crime. And I'm like, I promise you it has less crime than Manhattan. And even so, everywhere has crime. Like he, he works um, in a very rural area. And he's just like, yeah, it's all just, it's all like the rural areas everyone likes to romanticize in the U.S. Like, ah, corn. And there's, there's that old Tumblr post that's like, the like pastoral America is not romantic and amber weaves of grain. The, the locals are on drugs and everyone's racist. Like, I don't think everyone's racist, but I do believe the locals are on drugs because 
everyone some some there's drugs everywhere <laughs> there's drugs everywhere that's 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 the other thing there's drugs everywhere. although to be fair my husband who's born and bred new york city he grew up in harlem he misses his 1970s and 1980s new york's like where's the graffiti where's the crime why is there a disney store in times square he misses his old new york I can understand that, though, because it's a nostalgia for the way things were when you were a kid. My neighborhood, because the weirdest thing, I have um, the unfortunate uh, privilege of working in the neighborhood in which I grew up. So I, um, I'm i a, a lifer librarian. I started volunteering in high school, and then they kind of, you know, impressed me into working there as a teenager, um, which actually probably saved my life. And now I'm a librarian. Not, I, I don't work as a librarian there, but I do work at the library that I grew up going to and working at. And I've watched the neighborhood change over the last 20 years. And it is, it's a little depressing. Because, like, you see how things are different and the same. And it really maximizes with you. Because, <laughs> like, I think gen- there's, that, um, there's that statistic that most Americans these days do not die anywhere near where they were born. Most Americans move around now than the way they didn't mm-hmm. used to. That's why the regional accent is disappearing, you know? Because mm-hmm. they used to have, like... You know, there was a Chicago accent, there was a Milwaukee accent, and there's this and there's that. And now it's just broadly Midwestern and broadly, like, this and the other thing. So, like, it's it's very weird. I can understand his perspective, like, seeing somewhere that you've been your whole life change so much in so much time. Well, you know, there's that New Yorker cartoon where it's a little boy and a little girl. Like, they're supposed to be six years old walking through the streets. And the caption is, New York sure has changed since I was a kid. <laughs> That's so good. I mean, there's always like, oh, is that the CVS that used to be the bank that used to be the Starbucks that used to be the restaurant? So you do get a lot of that. But that's. that's oh, the yeah. Uh, I, you know, I can walk you down the street that I work on and I can say that used to be Nam Viet and it was the best Vietnamese restaurant and I still miss it. I'm so bitter that it closed um, because it was my favorite Vietnamese restaurant. And now I'm all alone with Sans Vietnamese. And like this used to be a Starbucks and God do I wish it still was because I need pastries in the morning. And that movie theater was the movie theater that I saw every movie in when I was a child and now it's closed. And like, you know, you can, and that nail salon used to be this. And it's, it's very like pedantic and annoying to people, but I still think about it every day. <laughs> so New York is sort of that on steroids because it's- Oh constantly. yeah, because everything moves so quickly there. Yes, but no mountain lions to bring but it No back. mountain lions. I mean, the, the greatest wildlife you'll see is rats. Oh, yeah, so many rats. We're, we're big on rats. We're, we're a bit overrun with rats at the moment. Also raccoons and skunks and squirrels and pigeons. pigeons. Mm-hmm. It is funny that, like, uh, speaking of domestic fowl, um, mm-hmm. in the Midwest, they have squirrels in very, like, everywhere has their own, like, animal situation. Like, you know, the farther west you go, the more geese you see. And they all have, like, you know, there's scorpions or whatever. In the Middle East, where I've been a number of times and where, where my husband's family is from, uh, everywhere just has cats. <laughs> it's just cats everywhere. And I'm just like, why can't that be our thing? Well, if I may, um, the last time I was actually in... Not the last time I was in Moscow, because the most recent time I was in Moscow was in 2019. But when I was in Moscow in 1995, I was actually working for ABC Sports at the time, and we were covering um, a pair team that Elena Berezhnaya, she's the one that was affectionately called Bladehead, because her partner hit her in the head with his blade while they were swimming side by side. And she's not swimming, sorry, spinning, spinning side by side. And she had brain damage and all that. So we went to shoot in a hospital to show what a Soviet hospital looked like. And there were just feral cats wandering around Mm -hmm. and i remember the cameraman going 
is that a cat wandering through the operating room? And me going, yeah. And, uh, you know, the, periodically someone working in the hospital would put out a plate of something for the cat. And the cameraman was like, is that a former patient? So sometimes cats just wandering around is also not the greatest look if you're looking not for Not super like, sterile. Yeah, not super sterile. So. I don't know if you've seen um, another tangent. There's this really amazing Turkish documentary film um, called Kedi, which is about the cats of Turkey and oh. of um, Istanbul. And they have a very specific relationship with their cats. Like, as a culture, they love cats. They take care of their cats. Like, they'll just take random street cats to the vet when they're sick. They feed <laughs> cats. The cats have, like, particular spaces. It's it's so cool and romantic and at the same time sad, of course. Because, you know, when you, feral cats, like, when you have feral cats, you've got feral kittens. And when you have feral kittens, you've got dead kittens. Uh, which is super fucking depressing if you'll pardon my french <laughs> yeah i think maybe when i'm when i'm of an age i'll just start like a, a trap neuter and release char charity or something and like become bob an barker. old cat that lady bob barker that was his big charity make, make sure to spay and neuter your pets yeah there you go yeah i actually worked the daytime emmys for many years and the year that we honored him with a i think like a lifetime achievement award that was so big part of the segment so that's what I think about when I think of, I never watched the prices right I don't think I've ever seen an entire episode from beginning to end but boy when we were editing Bob Barker was there a lot about spaying your pets I mean he was ahead of his time <laughs> we gotta control the animal population there's so many good boys and girls who need homes <laughs> well on that note spay and neuter your pets um thank you so much for tangenting with me today this was so much fun i love the tangent so at the end the book we were talking about was if tomorrow comes in case anybody lost the thread by sydney sheldon in case that was lost along the way the book was if tomorrow comes by sydney sheldon yeah and i would say it's a it's a thriller it's a uh it's like a caper book it's got romance, it's got crime, especially crimes that uh, you couldn't get away with today just because of technology. It's got right. check, real, check fraud, it's got everything. Counterfeiting, <laughs> yeah, jewelry theft. Counterfeiting, check fraud, jewelry theft, insurance fraud. All, all the things that now they're gonna check by staring into your retina. <laughs> yeah, all things that are like, I need fingerprints, I need DNA evidence, like it's, it's nothing you can get away with today, but that's one of the things that I love about books like this that came out. And that's one of the things that I found really interesting about it is because there are scams that you really just can't run anymore. Um, because and that's why I think it's so interesting to read books that came out even like 10, 15 years ago, because there are security measures they do now yeah. that like, you know, like just like thermal imaging that they're like, ah, oh, we can find out what the, like, it's just so cool. Uh, it's really interesting to read, especially if you're interested at all in like, you know, just general, like, fun crime situations. Yeah. Although it's, I will say, just to end on, end on a, a favorite moment. My favorite moment of the book might have been when she sees her, her ex-fiancé and his wife at a restaurant, and her first instinct is to run, and then she just kind of looks at him, and she's like, oh, I don't need to take any revenge on him. He's already miserable. <laughs> He's made yeah. his own bed. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I had such a great time and we talked about so many fun, different things. I'm going to send you a bunch of links after this because I just thought of a million other things that I think you'll like. Oh, cool. But 
You take care and thank you so much for coming on and plug your book. My next book is going to be out in November, which is My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region, which is the one we talked about in the beginning about Birabajan, the first independent Jewish state of the 20th century, but also love, romance, intrigue, mystery. My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region coming this November. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk again soon. Have a good one. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you again so much to Alina for being our first guest of this season. I can't wait to share the rest of it with all of you. If you'd like to, her links are going to be in the podcast notes. Um, And you can also look up the other books we've read for this podcast, which I now have in a list on Goodreads. I'll also have the link for this book and Alina's Twitter and my own. So you can look us up if you'd like to. Otherwise, uh, happy Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to sharing the rest of the season with you. Bye-bye.